I'm Andrew Knight, and you're listening to the Music Therapy Research Podcast. I'll sing about a hold-up man, the best one's ever known. He came from old Missouri State, where people must be shown. He'd get aboard the Fast Express and holler, hold them high. Don't any man take down his hands unless he wants to die. Oh, you Joe, old Missouri Joe, if any man takes down his hand, he's bound to wake up hopping with the angels' banner. In this episode of the Music Therapy Research Podcast, I'm pleased to welcome Dr. Robert Groney, again uh, continuing excuse me, our Music Therapy Perspectives editorial board series here. And uh, Dr. Groney is an associate professor and the director of music therapy at the University of Missouri at Kansas City. He, reser- he received his uh, bachelor's, master's, and PhD degrees from the University of Minnesota. He's a past professor at the University of Iowa and Wartburg College, also in Iowa. Dr. Groney is an active teacher, researcher, clinician, and research editorial board member in local, regional, national, and international venues. He was a past nominee for president-elect of the American Music Therapy Association, past president of the AMTA Midwestern Region, former co-chair of the AMTA Standards of Clinical Practice, and a recipient of the AMTA Service Award. He's a former interim associate dean of academic affairs at the conservatory, a recipient of the Muriel McBrien Kaufman Conservatory Excellence in Teaching Award, and a recipient of the Kaufman Conservatory Service Award. Dr. Groney is a leadership fellow of the UM system and co-chair of the 2020 Task Force Faculty Staff Student Climate Subcommittee. His current research interests include the efficacy of music therapy concerning neurologic music therapy, curriculum, imagery, dementia, road rage, dental fears, and aging in community. It's a fascinating biography, and, and I've been interested in, uh, in Bob's work, uh, especially I ask him a little bit about the road rage and dental fears, and, and we talk quite a bit about creativity in research. How do you come up with these different research designs based on some of your interests, wherever they may lie? So I hope you enjoy this episode of the Music Therapy Research Podcast with Dr. Robert Groney. I'm pleased to welcome Dr. Robert Groney to the Music Therapy Podcast, uh, Music Therapy Research Podcast, that is. And uh, and I'm wondering if you'd start with the question we always start with, which is how did you first get interested in researching music therapy? Oh, I'd be happy to, Andrew. Actually, I got interested in my first music therapy uh, research from my undergraduate professor, uh, Judith, Judith Jellison, who was my uh, my director, she was a director of music therapy at University of Minnesota at the time. Um, in one of her classes, we did research class, uh, research progress, pro- projects, excuse me, as an undergrad, um, and that was great. Um, her GTA at the time was David Wolf, and so he was a GTA for that course. Um, I was interested in client music preference studies. Uh, especially with clients who could not verbally indicate what music they liked. And I found a study by Vance Carter, and uh, it was uh, from the Journal of Experimental Child Psychology in uh, 1971, and was called A Nonverbal Technique for Studying Music Preference. And what Vance did was he had basically uh, a key machine, and with four different keys uh, for two different types of music, and then silence, I think, and then white noise. And then 
the clients were at that time called uh, mentally retarded, now called intellectual disabilities. And so he was trying to find out their music preference without them having to tell him because uh, they probably couldn't do that. So they used headphones and um, um, he'd do, uh, as long as the, the button had, each, each of the four buttons had a spring on it. So as long as you press the button down, you could hear whatever the uh, stimulus was. And so, um, and he would randomize the stimulus among the buttons every two minutes. And from doing that over for a period of time, he determined uh, what, what kind of they preferred. And uh, so I'll, I, I can't remember exactly what I did to try to duplicate that as an undergraduate. But I do remember David Wolf uh, really liked uh, that study by, uh, uh, by Vance Cotter. It was Cotter and Spradlin, actually. Because um, it's funny, because uh, I was teaching uh, David's, um, David Wolf's um, uh, text that he and Eric Walden did on uh, pediatric music and pediatric medicine this semester. Mm-hmm. And I noticed uh, in the book um, that they have an attached CD and a program so that a child patient uh, could indicate his or her preference for different songs from albums like Disney and Sesame Street and others. And what the child does is uh, they click on the excerpt uh, with their mouse and then digital timers start counting how long a child remained at each song choice. Uh, Not unlike the Cotter study, just um, 40 years, 30, 40 years later and uh, in the digital age. I wasn't sure if this was a coincidence or if David actually recalled the Carter study. But in a similar fashion, um, I kind of glommed on to that kind of uh, research idea. So I remember Jane Stanley hooked up mercury switches to the ankles of infants, which would trigger from one ankle either the mother's voice or from another ankle, I think it was a sound stimulus. And I remember her saying that although they could not speak yet, of course, it didn't take a very long time at all for the infant to find the mother's voice, even when Jane would switch and randomize the conditions uh, amongst the mercury switches. So in my career, I ended up, um, uh, this kind of leads into the second question on uh, kind of the music, kind of the studies that some of the studies I enjoyed doing uh, that I think about. And one was a music therapy preference line uh, in a few studies I did. Uh, the first one was kind of my dissertation study, and it was called Effectiveness of Music Therapy Intervention with Individuals um, with Alzheimer's Type, CNL Dementia. Uh, and with those folks, um, I wanted to, I was looking at music, at Alzheimer's folks who did a lot of wandering in the nursing home. And uh, so I used two independent variables for that. Um, I compared... Um, uh, doing music therapy session with them on a one-to-one versus reading to them. And um, uh, so for the uh, dependent variables, um, I checked and see how often they wandered, baseline wandering up and down the halls of the nursing home. And I checked uh, on their mini mental state, cognitive state with a mini mental test. And then um, I also checked on how long they stayed in the area with me when I did what either stimulus, the reading, or the music therapy. So that was called the seating proximity area. And it's interesting, this study was done in, well, my dissertation was in 93, probably was in 92, summer or 91. Uh, but this is long before uh, I'd known anything about neurologic music therapy. And hmm. here I was with pedometers 
kind of latched on to me, following people up and down the halls to get their uh, stride length from their ankle, ankle to their ankle, and then putting that on the pedometer and attaching it to them so I could find out the distance they were traveling. So it's kind of this kind of the fun things about research to me is how to how to work up the technology, and you know it doesn't always work. Uh, but those who are in wheelchairs who wandered, I put on um, a bicycle uh, mileage counter, a cyclometer, on their wheelchairs check out that distance. And then we had people with irregular gait that a pedometer just wouldn't work. So I hooked up a mercury switch to a counter I got it at my local radio shack at that time. And it counted the number of steps when they did an irregular pace. So I counted their wandering that way, which is kind of fun to do that. And as far as the conditions, um, uh, I read to them things that were interesting during their life, reading their life history, right? So uh, um, some, some of the people, actually I had five boxers in that study, and there were 30 people in the study, by the way, which is one of the first studies that had that many people in music therapy with Alzheimer's or dementia in a single study. But five of these 30 were former boxers, and they had diagnosis of dementia pugilistica, blows to the head. And I showed them pictures and read them a little bit of Muhammad Ali and that kind of thing, right? Um, I had a guy who was a real estate agent. This was in Minnesota. And so I read him the Minnesota real estate code. I mean, talk about dry stuff, but he loved it, you know, because <laughs> it was part of what he did. So, uh, so I tried to really be fair on the side of reading versus just the music therapy stuff, right? I did that. And... Um, what I found in that uh, in that study was um, uh, we did like five sessions of music and two of reading for one group and five of reading two of music for another group. So we could um, get rid of some of the bias and see what happened when you switch. But um, cognitive-wise, the MMSE didn't change for either one. Um, Proximity-wise, they stuck around longer, uh, even when we, they were in the heavy reading, we switched to just a lighter part of the music. They stuck around longer for the music, music therapy instead of reading. And uh, for the, uh, um, let's see, distance, time, uh, oh, the distance. Um, yeah, distance was all over the place. So, but pretty much the sticking around was was the big thing there. Yeah. Uh, so that was. I, I kind of find out. I'm trying, I was trying to show that music was, you know, powerful and efficacious. And then I did another type study on a music preference too. Uh, later in uh, 2001, this one was called the effect of presentation and accompaniment styles on attentional and responsive behaviors of participants with dementia diagnosis. Try to say that five times in a row fast. Right. Great title. Uh, yeah, great title. Uh, basically, eight folks with dementia, Alzheimer's nearby, uh, UMKC at a nursing home. And uh, I did sing along with them. So I sang, we sang all the old kind of stuff, You Are My Sunshine, Home on the Range, that kind of stuff. And I did it in uh, four different conditions, a live condition and a tape condition of uh, the accompaniment style. Because I was checking on, well, let me back up. On this one, the reason I even did that study was I was there doing some other work, and I noticed an aide trying to struggle through leading a sing-along. He was semi-musician, maybe. Uh, just kind of didn't know how to do it, messing up his F chord, single strums, out of tune. I noticed all the folks pretty much were falling asleep or wandering away. I thought, we could do a lot better than that, you know? And so... So I emulated, I honored him by emulating him as one of the conditions. 
So if I, I'll do an audio here. Um, mm-hmm. Side by side was one of the songs. So I tried to do as, as crummy a job as I could on side by side, or just like for a beginning music therapist who just barely gets the F chord down, you know. And I tried to, not to be syncopated and everything. So the simple, simple condition of accompaniment was this. Oh, we ain't got a barrel of And then I threw all the bells and whistles in for the complex. That's the other condition. I did that with uh, different conditions. And um, the independent variables uh, were things like how much did they stay around the area, just like my wandering study, how much applause they gave me, how many compliments they gave me, if they sang longer, uh, if they hummed longer, and that kind of thing. And so we had these combination of conditions. uh, And... What do you think happened? What do you think was the best combination of either live or, or simple, uh, either live or taped accompaniment versus simpler complex? Uh, Andrew, what do you think? I'm gonna, I'm, well, one of the things we always want to be able to say is that live music is always, <laughs> is always you know, uh, preferred, for in, especially in terms of you know, engagement and everything. Yeah. Um, the other part, simpler or complex, sort of, I guess that would be a tougher question because it, dep- because I'm not exactly sure on the cognitive abilities. You know, somebody with a higher cognitive level, maybe they'd yeah. be able to preach that complex. But when they have lower cognitive level, it seems like we should go with a simpler accompaniment. You would think that. But the ability of the guitar on that complex awful is the rhythmic part, right? And so we know rhythm kind of innervates at the brainstem, right? And so you get uh, you get really moving even if you don't have you know a lot a lot upstairs. And that's that's all I can think of because the live complex was usually the best. The recorded complex was right in there too. Live simple was way way down, and recorded simple was even farther down hmm. as far as these dependent variables. Well, even though it was eight, uh, this this was a a nice rationale I would say to my guitar students is, you know, the quality of musicianship can affect the quality of client response. So you actually have to up your game on guitar rather than just what you're doing right now. Right. So that was kind of what happened on that one. Let's see, another study I did was I was interested in workforce issues of music therapy. Um, and uh, that one was called uh, Wanted Music Therapists, a study of the need for music therapists in the coming decade music therapy perspectives in 2003 and um, the executive board asked me to check on some workforce issues of music therapy at the time Uh, and so I did um, the most interesting thing of that study was the graph in it at the very end and what I done was I compared music therapy Uh, numbers of music therapists versus numbers of people in all different kinds of uh, disciplines. And I compared that to um, the ratio of professionals to the U.S. population, which at that time was 280 million. Uh, 
And so this graph shows, for example, way on the left side, um, there is one special ed teacher for every 690 people in the United States. Uh, and then if I go into the middle, let's see, there's 375, uh, excuse me, there's one home health aid for every 375 people in the United States. Um, move into dentists in the U.S. Um, let's see, uh, a lot of dentists. But we go to music therapy, MTBCs. There's one music therapist for every 127,737 people in the United States. Hmm. If you take um, uh, just those who are uh, CBMT folks, uh, and I estimated, um, you know, how many were there, it was one every 83,000. And if you assumed at that time, and it'd have to be an assumption, there were 10,000 music therapists out there, it'd still be one for every 28,000 clients. So, and this is a, uh, this is a striking graph. Uh, it's been used a lot by executive board and other folks talking about the need for more music therapists. So I was, that was kind of interesting. I did an update. I haven't published, but an update on that is pretty similar. Almost we even have lost a little more ground because some of the other professions have actually gained more in their in their numbers and we've gained in our numbers. As opposed to the uh, in, and the growth of the country, another 40 or 45 million or so probably to this point. Yeah, what are we yeah. at, 330, 330 million or something now? Yeah. The latest research I'm doing, um, I'm in a... It's called a consortium on aging at UMKC with uh, several other disciplines, uh, uh, medicine, law, nursing, uh, psychology, uh, biomechanical engineering, some other folks. And um, we're working on a project that deals with um, going into a brand new facility for seniors that's being built in uh, a nearby area. And it's just totally wired up. So uh, uh, actually we'd say wireless up now, right? Because uh, they have sensors everywhere for them, bed sensors. They're, they have wearables they'll wear. They're gonna, it's gonna check all the physiological data. And they're tying, we're tying that in with Amazon Echo uh, equipment. Uh, and so, and they, so they can walk out, uh, they have a little kind of a campus area there, and uh, there's uh, sensors even when they walk out. And so um, I'm gonna try to do music therapy in there to see uh, how effective that would be. I'm thinking more for like if the physiological data shows some anxiety there, um, how music therapy could get in and uh, even get in remotely and try to work with clients, for example. So that's kind of the latest stuff I'm looking at. Hmm. You know what's interesting about when I even listen back to it, the creativity that it takes to do research too, because, you know, when you think, as an example, you know, uh, pedometers, right, you said, and, yeah. and cyclometers and everything. Right. And you're right. There's no protocol that just existed out there that you said, here's a protocol, here's how I, here's exactly how to do a research study. No research yeah. study just exists in our minds where, where, where uh, you know, if you're a student or a, or a young clinician and you're starting out and you want to do research, it's, it's not like research is just sitting there for you to do. You have to be creative in this. Two of the examples that I think you are such a great example of the creativity, besides a couple of ones that you listed, are I remember in a, it must have been like the mid 2000s yeah, or so, is the dentistry and the road rage stuff. I, I just thought that was It's kind of a joy uh, yeah. to be a, to a researcher. I, I really think that, yeah. Um, I know uh, one of your questions is what advice do you have for new and excited uh, music therapy researchers? 
Um, I would say for a brand new person, start by casting a wide net on whatever you want to study and then start reviewing the literature, see what's been done and start to hone in on what can be done with quality in the time that you have to do it. Um, cause that, those are all factors of course in, in the way the higher ed system works, you know, that's why the end of our semesters are so nuts because we're, we're working Monday through Friday, nine to five, you know, the, the hallways are virtually empty on Sundays, that kind of stuff. So there's, you know, there's some evening stuff. It's just the way the constrictions are. Um, I also thought to highly consider the advice that our prominent music therapist researchers are giving regarding current protocol for whatever type of research you wish to do. And there's really nice advice lately. So coming uh, from all kinds of nice uh, research leaders in music therapy here. I just, I just recall, you know, Sherry Robb and Deb Burns kind of starting the ball rolling in one aspect there. And, and lots of people talking about how you should do things for evidence-based research, for example, but lots of advice on how to do um, qualitative research, too. Mm-hmm. Um, then I said, have fun doing it. I mean, really, you, you, you really want to really have fun doing it, really something you want to know. And then I'd say read widely, uh, not just music therapy studies, uh, because we're serving the whole client. So, and, um, and often, you know, you might want to be part of a team or collaboration, right? Um, transdisciplinary team or interprofessional team as, as some of the research that you've done as well. Yeah. And did you get any particular advice from when you're talking about Dr. Jellison and, and some of the other people that you were working with initially? I mean, do you, do you recall specifically when you were getting, did some of that advice stick with you? And, and is this some of that advice about having fun and so forth? I think uh, some of it was indirect because watching them as models, right? Uh, though you also glean things like, you know, you, you really have to, get rid of as much in experimental studies you have to get rid of as much bias as possible right mm. so you have to uh, uh, make sure you equalize things and you do random selection and all of that and uh, most of those concepts I learned initially from Dr. Jellison and David Wolf yeah mm-hmm. and um, when you're talking about um, the research and maybe this goes back a little bit to your um, the, the, the new analysis that you're talking about because it's not just about having enough clinicians to serve everybody too but making sure you know that you know research is a part of us making sure that we're getting out there so that clinicians have access to these the, the, these other clientele how do you see the role for the future of music therapy research in terms of you know maybe being able to fulfill that call that you put in the 2003 paper and that you're probably putting uh, forward again in terms of can research help us get more clinicians out there into the field? Yeah. Um, I know uh, uh, AMTA was taking some of that data, especially that nice-looking chart, uh, and and showing it to folks on um, why we need more music therapists in the field. Um, And then, of course, there's the issue of uh, uh, can a music therapist clinician also do research, right? Uh, Do they have the time? But if they're part of a team, like it seems like there's more collaboration these days and more teamwork, uh, maybe that could happen, right? Could they be do a, do a certain part of it? I think about Deb Burns and her team, her research team, which is not unlike a lot of uh, scientific labs. Um, I think about uh, Elizabeth Stegmuller up in uh, Ames, uh, Iowa, who's got her own lab 
uh, and doing some nice nice studies on physiological. So, um, yeah, um, I also think maybe you would have to be, it would be nice, ideal, of course, if you could build in an effort, if you were getting a job as a music therapist, to advocate for, I will need some time, um, not only to plan, but uh, I need to do some research to keep um, our continuing uh, our continuing education and research uh, aspects going in music therapy. So that may be a tough sell initially, uh, but I think that might kind of be a nice thing to try too. You know, especially when you're talking about um, the future, uh, this part of it, and, and you're mentioning, um, uh, you know, teams and all that stuff. I'm just wondering, do you have any, par- any particular opinion or, or do you have any thoughts about the music therapy research 2025, the whole thing, uh, again, since you mentioned AMTA specifically, since our professional organization is sort of pushing this, you know, what does the future of music therapy look like? Do you have any perspectives on their uh, report on that? Um, I, I don't know if I've read their report uh, totally or not, uh, but I do have perspective, perspectives on future. Mm-hmm. Um, first off, I'm, I'm astounded by the almost instant access of any recorded music on the planet with a few clicks or directives to Alexa or Siri or Echo, and now even Google has their own. Um, it increases our, our sound palette um, besides what we've had on our improvisational palette um so in some ways and that was you know in my time you know we had to go to the stacks to get research right or we had to go to get a record or something right um uh, when you free up when you free up some time for that for our main tool uh hopefully then we can do some even more things and research and not be burdened by trying to find find the right music uh i did a dental study um wasn't published, but at the dental school at UMKC. And uh, I was kind of a DJ when uh, they were getting tooth extractions, which basically means they're getting their tooth pulled, uh, some of the folks in the community. And I was a DJ on the other side uh, of the uh, of the barrier there. And But beforehand, I'd, I'd work with them a little bit, 15, 20 minutes before, see what they liked. And at that time, that was maybe 15 years ago, um, they had a certain song in mind. So I have to go outside to find a hot spot on the benches there by the dental school and pull that up just before they got their extraction to, to play that for them. So, I mean, that's kind of important. Um, also for future, I really hope to see more studies dealing with music therapy in the brain. Um, I look forward to even greater technology beyond the present uh, scanner machines. Um, I don't know. Nanotechnology might be very interesting. Robotics, uh, artificial intelligence, whatever is yet to come. Um, I think we need to replicate our studies more for greater validity. Um, so, you know, um, we got creative creative types like me doing all these different things. You know, I did a road rage study and that kind of stuff. And, you know, you're not going to get duplication on some of the brand new stuff right away, I doubt. But, mm-hmm. um if we had a lot more members, you know, like psychology does, right, yeah. then you'd see some of this, right? Not that I'm slamming our membership, just I know the, the numbers. Um, and I also think about the evolution of a profession often. And I know that some older, longer professions 
in their journals, they'll have competing articles kind of back and forth on different sides of an issue. Sometimes it's a running dialogue that spills across uh, several issues of their journals. I think kind of music therapy, we have been in kind of the nice stage where we don't do that yet. We don't um, kind of uh, critique someone's uh, negatively uh, versus ours is better or anything like that. But I think with more members of our profession, we could have more of dialogue right through right through the research and the journal articles um, where you could flesh that out and kind of read the running dialogue. And uh, not to be not for it to be a negative versus positive, but um, we I think it, it'll evolve where we can uh, talk more about different aspects of that. Uh, and both aspects may be true in certain contexts. But I, I do think the future looks wonderful uh, for uh, for music therapy research. And I know we've come a long way. I mean, research committee was the, the main committee in the beginning. And uh, so I, I know we're going to look forward to continued continued growth and progress in that area. Yeah, and I, I hope it's also um, positive uh, this time of year. Like you said, it's it's uh, tough since we're recording this, you know, around the end of the semester and before uh, our schools you know depending on if they're trimester or quarter or whatever they're taking breaks and all that stuff but yeah like you said it's uh, it's very also it's also really inspiring being around students when they're really coming up with some just off the wall kind of creative ideas uh, in terms of what they want to know because they have such interesting questions about music therapy that i never would have thought of but it's fun to guide the guide the research process and it makes you feel like uh, the future of research in music therapy is good because we've got a lot of pe- a lot of creative folks coming up uh, who want to try out a lot of things to help a lot uh, a lot of different populations that uh, that maybe we never thought of as well. So, yeah, absolutely, it's a kick walking through uh, any poster session these days and talking to folks on how, how did you even think of that? You know, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, but thanks for, very much for the time uh, and uh, for, all, for especially for taking me through the. Uh, the uh, intricacies of, of your uh, past research. It was really, really interesting uh, to hear you kind of, uh, you know, annotate those uh, various research studies along the line. And like I said, I've, I've been, uh, I've been blown away by the creativity, not just of the, not just of the road rage and the dentistry studies and everything, too, <laughs> but, but by, but by lots of the different things that you're doing. And of course, uh, by the students that you're uh, uh, putting out there in the world as well. Thanks very much, uh, Dr. Robert Groney for the time. Thank you, Andrew. Appreciate it a lot. Thanks for listening to the podcast associated with the Music Therapy Research Blog found at musictherapyresearchblog.com. Your hosts are Dr. Blythe Lagasse and Dr. Andrew Knight, music therapy faculty members at Colorado State University. If you enjoyed the podcast, please let us know by heading to iTunes and submitting a review and a rating. It only takes a minute and helps our visibility on the iTunes page tremendously. Thanks in advance. He ain't gonna come around no more for they planted him in a pinewood coffin. The tombstone said he was shot to walk on. Boy, you know you had a show, Missouri Joe.